only gonna do this one time. <clears throat> hey, yo. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Squares Podcast. I am your host, Wallow. Squares Podcast, podcast about fashion. Week number whatever, and we're back to have another good time. As always, the website is Worldwide Undercurrent to get additional information or to see things that I talk about that are on the podcast. So you don't have to go scouring the internet to find whatever it may be. So let me tell y'all what's been on my mind lately, like crazy Tyrese. Sock sneakers have been on my mind lately. It's a wave that started probably about two years ago or so. And I've seen them over and over again. And different companies come out with different versions or iterations of them. But none of them typically catch my fancy. Some are cool. I see some and I think, oh, those are nice. Some I see, I just immediately pass them over. But it never struck me as something that I cared about. Recently, though, I just saw a pair from Maharishi that really made the hair stand up on my arms. So, I know you're probably thinking, what shoe is that, Wallow? Do tell. I will. The shoe is not even out yet, actually. The shoe is supposed to launch May 4th on their or in their web store it's a tabby silhouette is what they call it so the maharishi tabby silhouette and it kind of isn't a snot a sock sneaker in a way because it's made of canvas but it has this split toe in the front which reminded me of ninjas and i don't know if that's the real reason i like it but i do like that little touch to the shoe so let me read you this maharishi's design looks back to the boots utilitarian roots with a particular focus on its usage for construction workers farmers gardeners and soldiers none of which is me the closest i'll probably get to any of that is a gardener and that's only because my grandfather is a gardener and i know you're also thinking How in the world does fashion associate with construction workers, farmers, gardeners, and soldiers? And I don't have the answer, so we can skip it. Good luck. Here's more. The split toe boot comes in either black or white and features a canvas construction, classic gum sole, adjustable heel fasteners, and Japanese mill type print. Like I said, it's dropping in their web store. But the thing about this shoe that caught me was probably the fact that it's not exactly sock. So a lot of the technology mixed in with these sock sneakers is uber comfortable stuff. Side note, we are getting to a point where we want to be super comfortable. That's all we're striving for. Think about the preponderance of sweatpants or joggers and leggings then we spawn into, or we blossom into, these sock sneakers that have some of the most comfortable materials on the shoe. Obviously, you have the sole on the bottom, but 
we're going for super comfort these days. And I'm not mad at it. I think it's important to be comfortable. I saw some article the other day and they were talking about, well, the headline on the article was about shoes that wouldn't make your feet hurt or shoes that, I think this was targeted at women, by the way, but shoes that wouldn't give you blisters or corns or things like that. And I thought to myself immediately, people still wear shoes that make their feet hurt? Hopefully not. Hopefully this is 2018 and we've evolved beyond that. And we're all in a better place with our comfort in our gear. But sock sneakers, part of the appeal of them for me, I have actually a pair of suede winter boots that I have. They are very comfortable. I slip them on. They don't have, you don't tie them up or strap them in or anything. So they're kind of like sock sneakers, but not exactly because they're suede. But they're very comfortable and they're very cool. And it's really one of my favorite pairs of shoes to wear. Nonetheless, this can be a bit of a summer version for me if I were to decide to get them. But I wanted to share them with um, the crew here, the squares out there. And also just kind of bring up some other ones that people may be feeling or digging into. Obviously, the most popular one that everyone has seen is the Balenciaga one. Typically, all black. And well, the one that you probably see the most is all black. And it says Balenciaga on the outside of your foot, left and right. Or they have a white version as well. And they also have a version where it says Balenciaga over and over on repeat across the shoe. That's the one you're going to see the most, probably. But Adidas makes quite a few, actually. And I was a little impressed at how many Adidas has once I thought about it. Of course, some of your luxury brands are starting to get into more of these as well. So the options are growing, growing and growing and growing. And we can start to get very comfortable out here in our stuff. Acne Studios has probably the most sock-looking shoe. They have, it's called the Tristan. Oh, bad timing for that name. But it's the Acne Studios Tristan. And that one looks probably the most like a sock to me. And I'm actually having a hard time finding it on someone's foot. But I would be curious to see what that one looks like on foot. I found a photo, but this guy has pants on, and that doesn't do much justice for the whole shoe overall. So take a look at um, the website if you want to see the shoe, or you can try to Google it. But I'd be curious to know how folks are feeling about these sock sneakers. Now, it hasn't really taken off like I thought it would just yet. I mean, it's trickling in, but I suspect in the next year or so, probably next year around summertime, there's going to be a lot of them out there and a lot of folks are going to be rocking them. And it's going to be very, very, very common to have on. All right, y'all, bear with me. We got to talk about Fendi. And I'm saying bear with me as if it's a strain for you guys out there which may not be the case. I, however, was really trying to not talk about Fendi. And not as if I have anything against Fendi, but 
it's kind of boring to me, but it keeps popping up in my eyesight. So I guess I got to talk about Fendi. So you all have seen a bunch of celebrities rocking the monogram Fendi stuff lately. That's the most boring part about it, by the way. The monogram part. I don't, I don't, I don't like monogram stuff, typically. So let me, actually, it's good that I threw that out there because that's important. So you can kind of know my full backdrop when I'm addressing this Fendi situation. Fendi has obviously been around for quite a while. I remember when I was younger, and let's just say the 90s, it was uh, kind of popular, but not super popular. And I know things go in cycles sometimes. So brands tend to go up and down and ebb and flow. And not as if Fendi totally fell off, but it just maybe fell off from the popular culture. Folks within fashion still bought it, still purchased, all that jazz. And it makes me think about, was it 1990? LL Cool J? Uh, a Fendi bag and a bad attitude. That's the type of girl to get me in the mood. Something like that. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And then you got, oh yeah, uh, my girl Lil' Kim. Animals of all kind. Russian Fendi sables and matching pool tables. Give money. Okay, 1990 something as well. Anyway, there was a point in time when rappers were paying more attention to it. Then they stopped paying attention to it. And now it looks like popular culture is back in love with it. So, let me tell you who also is excited about the return of Monogram Fendi. The counterfeit folks. Counterfeit people love Monogram stuff. And they love when y'all love Monogram stuff. Because it's so easy to imitate. Which is one of the reasons I tend to have an aversion to Monogram garments. Now, granted, you can really fake anything, but those things are very recognizable and people tend to clamor things that overtly scream a certain brand, which for me, that's not one of my inclinations. I'm not drawn to pieces that scream a certain brand. I don't want... And then here's the thing. Remember when it was tacky to wear a bunch of stuff that was all the same so but now we're gonna walk out the door with this Fendi hat this Fendi coat this Fendi shirt these Fendi pants that doesn't seem tacky to y'all no that's tacky however that's what folks are doing and that's what they want to rock back to the point monogram screams and it overwhelms the garment usually I find it hard to focus on the style of stuff or the construction of stuff when most of the attention is taken away by the monogram because that's all you see in a way it jumps out at you and it insists on being in your face that this is a monogram and this is Fendi and this is a block F or a Zucco print or whatever they call it in your face so I'm not feeling that but obviously that's um, coming back but 
one of the reasons they're coming back. So obviously the celebrities play a part too, but recently Fendi had taken on a big digital initiative. Last year they started a campaign, F is for blank. And you can come up with whatever predicate to that sentence you want to, whatever answer to fill in the blank. So F is for fearless. F is for fighter. I don't know. F is for Fendi, obviously. So they started a big digital campaign to kind of engage more millennials. And that was, and obviously, that well, it was a stated goal of theirs to engage more millennials and to dive into what they like and help them be a part of the brand overall. And it looks like it's starting to work. Like I said, this was just launched last year as an uh, online platform, digital platform, to be more interactive. And they wanted to create more of an experience around the brand, something that people will be able to feel a part of, so to speak. And matter of fact, I have a little quote here from an article I read about Fendi as I was doing a little bit of research. Fendi was always listed among the top three luxury brands with the highest digital competence scores in research firm L2's Digital IQ Index, which praised its strength in digital visibility and engagement to its online community. As you can see, you can have great products, especially when you're luxury. The, the, the greatness is pretty much baked into the product already. People know that. But you need to create a reason or an environment or some excitement around the garments that you have. And that's what draws people to your stuff. So over and over again, I'm going to keep talking about, I'm sure through many episodes, about how important marketing is and how important hype is. But nonetheless, this, this was a good marketing strategy and it has a lot to do with why they're back. We're going to see how they go because the thing with Fendi, really with any big brand, the stuff that's not easily identifiable to a certain brand doesn't tend to pop as much for folks. So I'm going to be watching to see, as you should too, how much stuff Fendi gets off that's not the monogram. And to me, that's going to be a real indicator of their style prowess. Now, I know, for instance, when we talked about Virgil going to Louis Vuitton and the lack of um, technical training, so to speak, and then how we also explored the notion of hype being a big part of the marketplace now. So it may not matter what other garments Fendi has that don't are not monogram or whatever, but I'd be curious to see how much stuff they start getting off that floats around and is not the monogram look for Fendi. So let's keep an eye on that. But let's see if it slows down. Let's see if it ramps up. Go Fendi, I guess. Hopefully y'all don't get upset with me, but I'm going to sneak in something a little serious. How about our folks or our mans over at Nike? And I kind of say mans as a double entendre. Remember last week I said, what's up with your mans? And that's never good. 
but that's what we're saying about Nike, particularly about the men in Nike. New York Times recently published a report based on an investigation into the culture at one of our favorite sportswear brands, Nike, and how toxic that environment is right now, or has been really, in past years. It's um, it's a pretty disappointing report, but it's not surprising, particularly in the era that we're going through right now. A lot of companies are being overturned, stuff is being exposed, and we're finally getting to a place where we can start to eradicate some of this behavior and oust some of the folks who condone and perpetuate it. Recently, they've lost about four top-level executives within that company, people who were close to Mark Parker, who is the CEO. So that gives you an indication on how high these folks were. In fact, in the report, they talk about a group that they kind of call friends of, well, let me back it up, let me back it up. One of the guys removed was named Trevor Edwards, and he's Nike's former president. Also along with him is Jamie Martin, um, who is Trevor Edwards' lieutenant, oversaw oversaw much of Nike's global business, and um, the company's chief executive is Mark Parker. So they were pretty high up individuals, and they ran a lot of stuff. Obviously, if you're that high at the top, close to the CEO. But they were so egregious in the treatment of uh, women employees in particular is what this uh, piece focused on. What happened, in case you haven't caught wind of the story, an internal survey pretty much began within the company, uh, within, with, within the women demographic, because nothing seemed to be being done about some of the issues that they would bring forth, particularly even when going to HR. A lot of the things were smoothed over or ignored, or there seemed to be some sort of even retaliation in a few instances, although you can't, of course, confirm it all the time, but that's what it appeared to be in some of the instances. So with nothing being done, a lot of the ladies um, began this kind of covert uh, survey, and they found that a lot of the women there had dealt with uh, harassment um, or discrimination, things that obviously are not good. So this survey and the results of it landed on Mark Parker's desk, which is the CEO. And then at that point, he unfortunately, to say it like this, his hand was forced and he had to do something about it. Now, Obviously, you don't want it to be a situation where we force you to do something about it. We want you to be able to be proactive and to be concerned enough to want to get this stuff up out the paint before we bring you this survey. Of course, when you do that in these times, you got to do something about it. So New York Times gets wind of it and they get wind of um, some of the results of the survey. And then they do broad interviews throughout the um, lady contingent in the company and they find this stuff is pretty toxic. So you have um, even women executive. Well, that's one thing too. Women are about fifty percent of that company. That's what the article said, and they only have about 
I think it was 38% of the director or executive positions. And of course, there's the pay gap thing as well. But even the treatment within Nike overall as a culture. So they said even within some of the meetings with executives and directors and things, women would be berated. Uh, there's one instance in where a woman says that she was berated to the point where she cried in the meeting. Um, another lady talks about how she was called a, a stupid B-word and the VP threw his keys at her. Um, another employee was forced to kiss. Well, a kiss was forced upon her. Um, going to a company dinner, Another, some other ladies talked about how going to a dinner, there some van, some Nike van or whatever was taking them all over there. And, you know, guys are in the van talking about or debating about which um, cities have the best strip clubs. Another guy or executive talking about bragging about how many condoms he carries in his backpack. Um, just all kind of things that really, really, really are not good for the workplace. Especially putting your hands on people, throwing things at people, uh, berating people. And they said it was just a culture that really decried women overall. And I, I got to say, I was extremely disappointed. And I know that at this junction, nobody is to be given a halo. So I'm not doing that per se. But just how systemic the problem was throughout there. Even so, there's instances in the article that talks about the HR folks and how they would tell people, like a lady would bring a complaint to HR um, about something that, um, some sexual assault that her manager did to her. And they would just talk to him, but yet she's still working underneath him and those kind of things. And I'm like, man, y'all gotta be a little more proactive about this stuff. And it just blows my mind that such a company who, no doubt, espouses or at least gives lip service to all these wonderful values and all these diverse things. Matter of fact, and one of the folks misbehaving and acting crazy was the head of diversity, a guy who's since been let go. I think he was a VP of diversity and inclusion. He's obviously been since let go. And uh, they actually now have a lady there who was in charge of that. But I'm like, really, Nike? Like, this is how y'all getting down? Out here in these streets as one of the global leaders? But, uh, and side note, for Nike too, uh, LeBron just had the top-selling basketball shoot. So, I guess they're doing a little rebounding and getting a little bit better. Because he didn't have it last year. Um, actually, I think Kyrie did, which also was a Nike person. But, but you know what though? And then too, this so this brings me back to some of the stories that I've read, and you kind of start putting pieces together. For instance, Steph Curry used to be with Nike. Now he didn't have a signature shoe, but I, when he went to either renegotiate or do something with the company to try to um, redo a contract or come up with something else. They didn't even have his name right in the presentation. Um, some other player's name was on the slides in the presentation, which he largely credits to him leaving Nike or not signing with Nike and going with Under Armour. And that is a grade A rookie 
Grade A, not paying attention. Grade A, not caring mistake. You can't make that mistake. And then you think about the three um, lead designers that left Nike a couple years ago and went to Adidas. And they talked about the bad relationship that was there. Even as um, polarizing as he is right now, even Kanye talked about the bad environment that was over at Nike. And I'm like, ooh, everybody's got something bad to say about y'all at different points. And y'all haven't checked any of this without this report? I mean, it took this to get you guys to do something about it? Shame. Tisk, tisk, tisk. So hopefully they've cleaned some stuff up and they've gotten better and they can get their act together out here in these streets. But we shall see. Adidas keep on creeping up on them, so. Mm-hmm. So, I'm excited. I have a new favorite, favorite, favorite person in the fashion game. Remember a few weeks back, I think it's actually episode nine, where we talked about those Versace sneakers that have the chain pretty much sold and the crazy color iterations. The guy who made those is a gentleman by the name of Salehi Bimbari, and I hope I'm saying his name right. He is the head of sneaker design at Versace. Young black dude, head of sneaker design over at Versace. And I know we talked about Virgil, and why not Virgil? Virgil had that kind of swag to me. This guy right here has a little bit of swag. Virgil may be decent at designing stuff and coming up with stuff that we like and want to buy. But overall, his style, his appeal, kind of boring. My man Bimbery got a little bit of flavor. So I'm rolling with Bimbery as my favorite. But kudos to Virgil. I mean, I'm not being divisive or putting them against each other. I'm just saying my favorite is my man Bimbery over at Versace. Now, the interesting part is he can kind of also be related to the tree of Kanye he worked on Yeezy seasons 3 and 4 I believe but before then he also worked at Kohan and he's he's had jobs, multiple jobs within the fashion game and his story is actually pretty interesting the way that he got to Versace he was um, I don't remember what company he was working for at the time but he actually reached out to Versace on LinkedIn and he saw an opportunity for them within the uh, sneaker market. He was working on shoes, obviously, where he was. And he's watched the trends and the way that sneakers are flowing and, he, and saw the opportunity for a lot of luxury brands to get involved with um, new ideas. And collaborations is what he really spoke on as far as they got casual observers of sneaker and such to be introduced to some of the luxury brand sneakers through some of those collaborations um, that they've done with the more popular sneaker brands like Nike we just talked about or Adidas or Puma or whoever. So, he um, they actually emailed him back in a few days and asked him if he can come out for a visit. So he said he put a little, put a little presentation together uh, in a couple days, 
flew out there and then he said he got hired on the spot. Now, as inspiring as that story is, I'm really more inspired at his fashion direction and his vision. Because what he talks about often, from what I read about him, is newness and creating something that is new. Even within an industry right now that seems to keep going or trying to go backwards or hearken to things that are old and rehash some of those things or do new takes on them. And I'm like, finally, this is what, I, this is what I've been clamoring for. This is what we need. I'm sure you guys have heard me talk about how I hate all this retro stuff. Well, I don't hate it all, but it's kind of overdone. I want new ideas. I want better stuff. I want to progress. And that's what my guy Bimbery is all about. So um, he talked about the process for making his shoes. And even with, so the chain reaction sneaker. Now, and this is funny because I kind of thought this when I saw it and got wind of it. It is a chunky sneaker, but it isn't necessarily made to be an ugly sneaker. And that's something, if you recall on the podcast, I said back in about episode nine, I said, I can kind of see this working. I can kind of see this one working. And it, it, and it felt a little different to me. It felt like it wasn't so intentional or trying to be ugly. It felt like it had a bunch of nice new incorporations into the shoe and silhouette that was a little unique. And I was like, I like that. As opposed to some of the other brands who still make so, like a lot of the chunky sneakers are also ugly sneakers. But that's the thing, just because it's a chunky sneaker doesn't mean it needs to be an ugly sneaker. So, for instance, some of the older, not older, but um, luxury sneakers, like the Balenciaga, um, what, Triple S shoes? Those are garbage. And they remind me of Skechers. And they kind of look like Skechers shoes. If you put them side by side. Also, look at, like, Raph Simmons has an ugly sneaker too, a chunky ugly sneaker. It looks like an Adidas Oswego shoe from back in like 97 or so. And I'm like, uh. And then even Yeezy's 500, like the Yeezy 500 runner, it looks like a Kobe Adidas shoe. Like it's part of the sole is biting off of that. And I'm like, man, like why do we have to keep trying to recreate or copy off of old stuff as well and be ugly at the same time. Like, that's a double, can we not do two negative things? In this case, two negatives don't equal a positive. Anyway, so he goes through the process and he talks about what it's like to be in that industry as an African-American and um, the diversity and, and even some of the, the challenges when coming up with something new within that industry, which is what I was here for. I'm like, we need new stuff. Bimbri is my guy. Bimbri is now my guy. But uh, so he said, like, for instance, one of the questions asked to him was, what has been Versace's response to the sneaker that he made um, from because well, that he made from conception through drafts to final product? Quote, during my time at Kohan, I both contributed to and witnessed many meetings, discussions and pushbacks that occur with the Lunar Guard. I'm sorry, Lunar, Lunar Grand. Introducing a drastically new silhouette can be intimidating to a brand, 
Opening a new tooling is an investment that a company wants to be confident in. However, being able to speak the jargon of other positions, sales, merchandising, marketing, helps with this dialogue. Uh, the first internal socialization of the idea was a 3D printed version of the tooling. I have found that sometimes three-dimensional models are more successful in communicating an idea. From its inception, the feedback was overwhelmingly positive, which aided in the development. I have felt nothing but support, trust, and encouragement here, which have proven to be a great fertilizer for design. So he wanted to, like, he's all about obviously honoring the heritage that Versace has. So he talks about how he was looking at like one of the chain fonts and was like, man, that's actually kind of a flat surface or a flat bottom if you lay that chain. Well, if you lay the chain, it will lay flat. He's like, oh man, that's probably could be used for a soul, blah, blah, blah. So he reworked this off from the beginning and I've often talked about how important marketing is when it comes to these products that we have. And it's interesting to hear though from a designer standpoint, who you have to convince, so to speak. And obviously you mentioned two different companies. So even at Kohan and then here at Versace, how important it is to be able to get the other departments on board. They need to be confident in selling it and know what they're selling, so to speak. And even the way he presented it, by creating a 3D version of it and not just a drawing or a sketch and giving them something there that they can have, which really a side note, Really, the marketing folks just need to do their freaking job. You don't do the designing. Y'all don't have that kind of inclination. I'm the one doing the designing. Y'all just market what I put out and what we make. And you sell it to the best of your ability. We didn't ask you to be giving input on the design and whether you like it or not. But that's, that's, that's just what I feel about that stuff. But so I felt like that was pretty cool to hear about um, you know, how that process worked for him. And then like one of the other questions was, um, or one of the answers that I liked, they asked him, what are you working on now for Versace? Where do you want to take the sneaker division? And this is where I got goosebumps, y'all. This is where I felt really good. I felt really good. He said, and I quote, all I can really say is newness. Newness. Donatella has given me the green light to create, so that is what I plan to do. A lot of creative endeavors can be stifled by sales, merchandising, or brand restrictions. However, I've been given a certain level of freedom and trust that when paired with Donatella's genius yields silhouettes like the chain reaction. So, I'm all about what my man Benbury's doing. And I think he's got a lot of flavor um, within his own style. And I really, really like this guy. So that's going to be my guy from here on out to y'all hear me say otherwise. I'm going to talk about him almost every week. No, I'm not going to do that to y'all. But I'm going to definitely follow my man closely and, uh, and see what he's coming up with. I like um, even, so side note about this chain reaction shoe. Of course, it looks better on women's foot than guys' feet. I've looked at the pictures. I looked at the photos. Believe me, as President Trump would say, with his hands in the air. Believe me, it looks better on women's foot. But um, if you're a guy with a not crazy big foot, you probably can wear them too. So nonetheless, we're getting more um, diversity within the, um, the game. And um, it's good to see. Uh, we're starting to get some African-Americans in there. 
obviously we need the ladies, um, black women as well, minority women to do different things. We need that. Uh, oh, funny thing too, he, he talked about how he did a speech at, well, meh, yeah, we call it a speech, at Ohio State University, and one of the students came up to him afterward, and they said that they were surprised at how he looked based on his position. And he said that was one of his most proud moments that people can start to, and what they meant by look was not so much that he was African-American, but that's part of it. But the way that he dresses and um, he didn't <clears throat> look like what typically um, maybe head designers look like or people in those positions. And he said it's good to start to change some of the image perceptions so that people can start to see themselves in these spaces. He said it's a lot like, for him at least, when he saw Barack Obama become president. A lot of what, the way Barack kicked it was different than previous presidents. He said, you know, seeing somebody kick it kind of how, kind of how I kick it was inspiring and it was um, uh, just adrenaline inducing and encouraging to push somebody forward. So as we start to get more folks in these positions, I hope this really pushes folks. Um, I know it encouraged me to do some different things and to um, be aggressive. So hopefully you squares out there too felt something when you just heard me talk about that from my man Bimbery. So that's the end of this episode. Hopefully when you cut this off and this ends, you are pumped, excited to do something major. Because I am. I'm about to turn this off and run a marathon. All right, Crit, take us out.